In this week's gospel reading from John 15, Jesus is spending one last night just prior to his arrest, torture, and murder with a few of his close friends. And he's encouraging them and equipping them for the next chapter of their life and mission without him. In this, his farewell discourse, he uses a word to describe the change in his relationship with them that's familiar to us to the point of losing its punch, but is utterly radical in its usage here. He calls them, and by extension us, friends. And this, this ought to stop us in our tracks because here is the eternal, omnipotent God, the God of the universe, calling us friends. The question for us is, what is it about the core of his mission, his death on the cross, that is so strong that it can actually turn strangers and enemies into friends? Because that's what he's saying here. And why is this so important? From the beginning, Christians have always believed that Jesus came into the world to die. And that his death was the unleashing of the power of the kingdom of God on earth. He taught us to pray for it, which we do every week. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want this world to look a little more and a little more like heaven. And that's only possible because Jesus came to die and be raised again to life. He unleashed that power, the power of the new creation. And in fact, St. Paul, when he describes what it means to be a Christian at one point in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, says when you are in Christ, when you're in a personal relationship with God, you're what? A new creation. The old has gone. The new is come. And here Jesus gives us one way to frame that. We are now his friends which means we're also now friends with each other, as John also made abundantly clear in the epistle reading for today. Because there's a vertical and a horizontal element to it. We're friends with Jesus, but now we also have a new relationship with each other. And really, the only way to understand the importance of this kind of friendship the kind of friendship that Jesus is describing here is, is to see it, this, this new creation, is to see it in light of God's big story, the four-chapter gospel, and understand that it's meant to reflect God's original design in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the way the world ought to be. And unless we see it in that light, that it's part of the new creation that points to the old creation. We won't fully understand our own loneliness and our own yearning for friends, nor will we understand the power of this kind of friendship in our lives to redeem and renew and restore us. Probably 30 years or so ago now, I, I got on a Joseph Conrad reading kick. 
I was fascinated by the fact that he was one of the most celebrated English novelists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, despite the fact that he was not a native English speaker. In fact, he didn't speak English till he was in his 20s. I think I read about everything he published, or nearly so. My favorite story of his is The Secret Sharer but he's best known for his novel, Heart of Darkness, which is the story that became the movie that you might know, Apocalypse Now. And I'm still gripped by one line in his book where he's describing loneliness. He says, we live as we dream alone. But while the dream dies, the life continues painfully. This is our destiny. Theologian Paul Tillich described the same thing. He said, being alive means being in a body, a body separated from all other bodies. And being separated means being alone. This is true of every creature, and it is more true of, of man than of any other creature. He is not only alone, but he also knows that he's alone. Aware of what he is, he asks the question of his aloneness. He asks why he is alone and how he can triumph over his being alone. For this aloneness he cannot endure, neither can he escape it. It is his destiny to be alone and to be aware of it. Not even God can take this destiny away from him. Now, that is an incredibly provocative statement that not even God can take this destiny from us. But it makes sense if you go back to the old creation account in Genesis. God creates Adam in paradise before it is corrupted and bent and says that everything in creation is good except one thing. It's not good for man to be alone. Even in paradise, we need friends. Because to be human is to be made in the image of a triune God, and to be made in that image is to be made in the image of an eternal friendship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So ultimate reality is relational. Ultimate reality is community. You were designed for it. And only other human beings can fulfill it. God can't take that inner sense of being alone from you. He can't rescue from it because he designed you for community with other human beings. That's the way the world ought to be, a life of friendship with God and with each other. Creation itself was an act of love in which God made room for other beings, not because he needed us or because he was lonely, but because he loves community, he loves relationship. He wanted to be our friends, and he wanted us to be friends. A cosmos full of relationships. He wanted to expand that circle to, to make room for more and more and more friends. That's the way the world ought to be. And because of that inner feeling of aloneness, because of that, the inner feeling of aloneness will never go away unless you have 
friends. Somewhat counterintuitively, loneliness is actually proof of God's image in you. It's pointing to who you are and how you were made. You need friends. Married or single, you need friends. We are, thanks be to God, slowly emerging from a time of the greatest isolation and aloneness, at least in my lifetime. And it's left so many lonely and bereft of hope. And so it's time to understand and reclaim God's intention for us. And Facebook cannot do it. Nor Instagram. Nor Twitter. They're fine. But you need to have actual friends. Because the Bible says... You were literally designed for it. So how does Jesus unpack that in John 15? What's what's the essence of it? And I think firstly, he describes the kind of friendship God designed us for as covenant and not consumer, commitment and not quid pro quo. Basically, a covenant relationship, the kind of friendship that Jesus fleshes out here, possesses at least two essential characteristics, intimacy and and constancy. This is, these are the qualities of friendship we were designed for. Intimacy and constancy. And it's how he modeled it in John 15. First, intimacy. John, the verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends for everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Friends don't hide. Friends don't withhold. Friends don't hold at arm's length. A servant-master relationship is just, I tell you what to do. I don't let you in. But a friend lets you in all the way in. Jesus says, I've given you everything you need to know. That's intimacy. Real friends encourage and affectionately affirm one another, yet real friends also offer bracing critique. Faithful, it says, are the wounds of a friend, like a skilled surgeon. True friends cut you in order to heal you. Friends also become wiser through a healthy clash of viewpoints. As iron sharpens iron, so friend sharpens friend. But this intimacy will never work apart from the second essential characteristic Jesus models here. Constancy. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So it doesn't get more constant than that. The book of Proverbs tells us that friends love at all times and especially during adversity. True friends stick closer than a brother. They're constant. They're always there for you. Being a friend means I'm in it all the way, and I'm not going to leave. There's a Hebrew word that kind of cuts to the heart of this. Chesed, Hesed, H-E-S-E-D, transliterated, a word that means essentially enduring love. 
It's difficult to capture the complexity and nuance of hesed with a single word in English. So translators often use several words in modern languages. Lamentations 3.22 is a really good example. The steadfast love of the Lord, <coughs> pardon me, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Hesed, here in the English Standard, or as Dan calls it, the Eastern Shore Version, is translated steadfast love. In other translations, it's rendered as great love, loyal kindness, loving kindness, mercies, and faithful love. Greek also has a word for this kind of love that attaches all Christians to God and to each other, agape. And it's just as nuanced as and complex as Hesed, so much so that it took St. Paul the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 to fill out the meaning he sought to communicate by it. These words, hesed and agape, carry the sense of enduring connection that brings life and confidence and security and so many other good things into relationship. The kind of intimacy and constancy that's the relational glue that binds friends to friends. These two essential characteristics of real friendship, intimacy and constancy, mean real friends let you in and they don't let you down. You know that's the kind of friend you want and hopefully the kind of friend that you aspire to be to others rather than to just see what you can get out of a relationship. But so often in an almost entirely consumeristic culture, our relationships often reflect that. They're often more of a quid pro quo, this for that. We're constantly engaged in this dehumanizing kind of relational cost-benefit analysis that looks like this. I stay in a relationship only as long as it's working out for me. I'm going to break up or change relationships, including marriage, when it's just not working for me anymore. So many of our relationships are bounded by that kind of consumer vendor metric. In other words, my personal gratification in the relationship outweighs my responsibility for the relationship. I'm out of here. It just doesn't work for me anymore. We live in a culture of unprecedented wealth, unprecedented mobility, unprecedented access to each other through our technology, and yet the growing tendency is to put the self first, and it leads to alienation and leaves us lacking basic needs like stable relationships, the security of commitment, and a sense of safety. And when your life is in trouble, and it will be at some point, your Facebook friends aren't going to be there for you. I mean, really be there. Or your Instagram friends, or your Twitter friends, because they're by and large not friends. They're contacts. Digital relationships dangerously offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Now, I am not saying that you cannot have a good friend who is also a Facebook friend. <laughs> don't, don't hear that. 
But our over-networked lives allow us to hide from each other, even as we're tethered to each other. We desire intimacy, but we settle for the digital illusion because we don't want to do the hard work of constancy, and constancy is hard work. But we need intimacy. We need constancy. We must let somebody in. We can't just keep showing each other our curated lives online. It's like when Lauren and I invite people into our home, at the appointed hour, when you show up, it always looks great. No clothes or clutter anywhere. The bathroom is spotless. The table is perfectly set. We're fully dressed. Now, the last one might go without saying, <laughs> but if you'd shown up 15 minutes early, you'd have caught us vacuuming feverishly in our underwear. That's more the real us. Not the curated us. I mean, I'm not saying the real us is vacuuming in our underwear. That's not what I'm saying. Gee whiz. There's this conversation going on behind my back. I can hear you. I'm here. But somebody, and hopefully a few somebodies, must know the real you and not the curated you because the curated you isn't. That's not who you are and unless you let somebody all the way in, you're never going to know who you are. Let me explain. In describing some of the characteristics of what it means to be human, Infinite Jest author David Foster Wallace, whom you've heard me quote before, he puts it this way, one of the things about what it means to be human is that other people see things about you that you don't see, even if those other people are stupid, which if you think about it, doesn't say much about us. But what's he saying? Actually, he's agreeing because everyone gets part of the story, right? He is agreeing with the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. The easiest person for us to fool is ourselves. We cannot possibly know who we are without friends. We need someone who's all in and who isn't going to leave. Someone who can tell us things we don't want to hear, but knows we will never change or grow unless we do. It's probably apocryphal, but I love what Michelangelo reportedly said when asked how he went about sculpting his magnificent statue of David. I simply looked at the marble and chipped away everything that wasn't David. He saw beauty and glory, but more than that, he saw David in that unformed block of marble. That's what friends do. They see things in us that we can't see, and they help us chip it away. Yes, sometimes it is painful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. But listen, those wounds will only be faithful if they are given 
and received in the security of intimacy and constancy. How do we know this kind of loving relationship works? Well, because of what Jesus' love and friendship did for us. The infinite God of the universe crossing the ultimate boundaries and declaring us his friends. One author said it this way, Few things could be more unnatural and incomprehensible to the human imagination than the willingness of the God who created the universe out of nothing to become a friend of mortals whose lives are but a breath. But the whole plan of salvation is an act of friendship whereby God took on our human likeness so that we could take on his likeness, transforming enemies into friends. And this is validated by Romans 5.10 says that, that says, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That is the heart of the gospel. Jesus laying down his life to turn enemies into friend and he's called us his friends to follow his example. This has radical implications, by the way, for the mission in the world that God has called us as a community to, to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of others. Remember, just before this, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is one of the reasons why we think, feel, believe we must be in our own facility so that we can make room for strangers to become friends. But this also has radical implications for how we love each other within this community. I'm not telling you anything new, but nearly everything about the past year seems like it was perfectly designed to militate against the kind of friendship Jesus fleshes out here in John 15. Friendships of intimacy and constancy. Our connections to each other became almost entirely digital and distant. And many of us have allowed ourselves to be inordinately influenced by competing myopic and unforgiving ideologies, mostly political, which has the potential to make us far more adept at turning friends into enemies than enemies into friends. It is too easy to retreat into our own echo chambers where no one tells us the inconvenient and hard-to-hear truth about ourselves, and we can simply leave the instant it's not working for us. It feels safe and freeing, but it is a deception. And we have to stand against it. As believers, we must, as propriety allows, re-engage in the hard work of community. Someone asked me recently, what is the relational temperature of our church? And candidly, I didn't know what to tell them. I mean, I think, okay. But there are people who've joined us during COVID that haven't even yet met everyone. This just totally blows me away. And it is time. It is time that we re-engage. But how? I've got kind of six suggestions, and they're going to go quick. First, come to church. 
I'm running into a lot of people, not just from our community, but are saying, yeah, yeah, I might go, I might come back someday, but man, it's just too easy. Just too easy to turn it on at home or just ignore it. Listen, I try not to tell people what they need, but you need community, real flesh and blood community, and your children need Christian formation. Another way you can do that is, hey, stay for a little while afterward and help us make 50 sandwiches for Second Sunday Sandwiches. We love to give those away, and we'll be doing more of that and increasing that number as they start giving out more, but we actually do share a meal together afterward, very informally, but a lot of good conversations and friendships start there. Thirdly, invite someone to join you for lunch. Just look around. You can now eat in restaurants. Four, join a serving team. Believe it or not, they're about more than just being a pack mule. Five, have someone over for dinner or host a dinner party. I know these are so basic. I'm sorry. But I I think we've gotten out of practice. Six, host or co-host a community or reading group in your home. Listen, you guys are the most responsible, intelligent, and creative people that I know. You'll figure it out. You just have to set your mind to it. And you know what? I never thought I'd end a sermon like this, but that's all I've got. But I do say these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.